HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're aiming to release a new episode every week, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme, shit is fucked. The world is changing so fast, and I'm finding it hard to keep track of it all. We're in a pandemic that might be getting worse. Black people continue to be killed by police at an alarming rate, and we're now in a recession. People are going hungry and may start losing their jobs long-term and losing housing. It's hard to wrap our heads around all of it. But the sun still comes up every day, and we get out of bed and we keep going. Those of us that were born white and have the money need to keep doing everything we can to be allies and to give money to causes that will help. People need support, and society is on the brink of failing us. We're about to see great change in this country. It will take work, and it will not be easy. I had a conversation with my dear friend Millicent Soros last week, and we talked about a lot of this stuff. Millicent is the rescue food coordinator at St. John's Bread and Life. They're the largest supplier of emergency food in New York City, and New York accounts for 40% of the homeless population in the entire United States. Her career has moved her from the kitchens of some of the most lauded restaurants in the country and led her to do more work to feed more people. One of the most stark things we talked about is the fact that the system is so broken that people can barely afford to get by even when minimum wage is $15 an hour. I hope this interview gives you a lot to think about. My name is Millicent Source, and I'm the Rescue Food Coordinator at St. John's Bread and Life. And St. John's Bread and Life is the largest emergency food provider in Brooklyn. Uh, people who are longtime listeners to Feast Your Ears, uh, if you go all the way back to episode two... Uh, I had the former director of St. John's Bread and Life on as the second guest. Oh, you had Tony on? Yeah, Tony was on as my second guest ever on Feast Your Ears. Nice. Uh, so as the as the the uh, the largest provider of emergency food, and that was true before COVID-19 
and the now, I guess, technically we are in an economic recession, right? February, I just read uh, in, I think, the post yesterday that February marks the beginning of a recession. February, not March. Uh, but even back when the economy was theoretically doing well, uh, yeah. St. John's was still the largest provider of emergency food. Yeah, I mean, the numbers for Brooklyn are before this. I always say, you know, before we know what before I mean now means is that 18% of people in Brooklyn were food insecure, which means that they don't have access to food to not be hungry all the time, you know. And I mean, the stats on New York are pretty terrible. Uh, 14% of the United States uh, population experiencing homelessness is in this city, not in this state. It is in this city, in New York City. 14% of the United States population that is homeless is here in the city, which is insane. And yeah, uh, right before we had a meeting, like I think in January or February, and the city had done a study to see what the biggest issue affecting its, the people who live here, and they, they thought it was going to be housing, um, but it's actually food insecurity. So they had, they had thought of some things um, of how to deal with that. So a lot of that stuff was in place. It's interesting because there was, there was some funding in place, and I think it was from that study. And, and now it's a whole different ballgame. Right, right. It's, it's changed immeasurably. So before, uh, you know, let's say back in January, what, mm-hmm. did a, what did a regular day look like for you? What is your, you know, are you you're preparing food and then also helping to distribute food? I don't prepare food. Like we have a soup kitchen that um, does breakfast and lunch, and then we also have a mobile soup kitchen that uh, five days a week would go, would go out to two or three different places in Brooklyn and in Queens. And, and then we have a food pantry, and it's a digital choice food pantry, which means that anyone can come and be a member of the pantry, and you have a certain amount of points per month that you can use. If you're one person, it's 250 points, and for everyone in your household, it's 100 points more. And you can choose what you want to shop. It's kind of like Peapod or like an online uh, grocery store. Um, And to give you kind of like an idea of the point system, like any can is 15 points, like a can of beans is 15 points. Also, a a bag of dried beans is 15 points, too. Um, you know, and like Chef Boyardee, that's 25 points. So it's to help people like our, our, we get busier as the month goes on when people run out of their food stamps and when they're out of their money. So our month ends up being quiet and then it gets really busy. And that sort of that same feeling happens now too, but it just has like a, such a different feeling. Like, Right now, we are serving, um, right now, like at the end of last month, at the end of May, we were hitting like 400 pantry bags a day, and now we're down to 250, but it's just because it's quiet. But 250 used to be our maximum a month ago, you know? Yeah. But it's it's interesting. It's the same vibe, though. We're like, oh, people got their money. People got their food stamps. 
And then as far as where the people are coming from, are you seeing people coming from a wider geographic area? For sure. There's people who are traveling. There's more cars pulling up. There's people traveling. You know, the last stat I heard was that 300 pantries and soup kitchens closed. Mm. I don't know if that's the city or the state. Right. But you figure there's so many small pantries and, and kitchens that are run by older people and in churches and in small spaces. So they, I'm sure that's part of the reason why a ton of them shut down. We stayed open the whole time and we changed our approach where at first we were trying to do still the same digital choice pantry and we got rid of that quickly because we started to limit access to the building. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we switched to just giving people a bag of food that is weighs 22 pounds, you know, and food bank is like 1.3 pounds of food designates a meal. So we'd like to think that's for like a week. Um, but people can get, and it's non-perishable, so people can get one bag a week and you can come up and become a member of the pantry just with an ID. It doesn't make a difference if you're undocumented, if you don't, you know, none of that matters. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a heavy ass bag. It's, it's got not, it's got shelf stable milk, juice, like six different cans, pasta or rice, um, you know, like a tomato, a protein, and then hopefully like a, a processed pre-prepared food, right? like a chef boyardee or like a chili or something. So I would say, I feel like the first day we did that, our numbers were like, we're like, oh, a hundred people. And then it just kept on getting busier and busier. And there were days where we would get 50 new members. We're open four days, you know. So because we also have a staff that we have to take care of. And, like, this has changed everything and has become so much more physically demanding. Right. So we maxed out at the end of May at over 400 bags a day. And so at the beginning, in the middle of March or the end of March, we were doing like 100 bags a day. And so that's how much it's increased. And then we also give away kind of whatever else. You know, we sometimes we have fresh produce. Sometimes we, we have a grant for milk right now, like fresh milk. For a while, there were, there were just like, a, like different companies donating. You figure that everything stopped. Right. Everybody closed. So there's pallets of weird shit around, right. you know, so you're like, Here's a pallet of cheeses. Here's a pallet of unmarked 10-pound cans from the Pepidou people. Here's a pallet of cookies. Here's a pallet of weird hippie veg chips. Um, A lot of that stuff we ended up, you know, people ended up donating. We got two pallets of gallon jars of kosher pickles. I thought we were going to be sitting on them forever. It took us a week to get rid of them. Hmm. So... It's been, I mean, people, people find out and, and we have systems. So hopefully people aren't like in line. We require no police assistance. You know, we're really trying to avoid that. Right. Um, No national guard, none of that crap. Yeah. As far as the variety of stuff you know it sounds like you guys have a had a fairly dialed in system for what you wanted to include for people in 
these bags of food as far as what the you know what it looked like it wasn't just a bag full of dry beans it wasn't just you know cans of chili has the availability of the things that you're including uh, changed? I mean, as I understand it from talking with Tony in the past and from my own sort of experience knowing about Bread and Life, some of the items are donated, but then you guys also have a budget and raise money to go out and purchase things that are then distributed. Yeah, we mainly get things from Food Bank and City Harvest. Um, So there's been more grants from Food Bank. In terms of the supply chain, you know, there's fear sometimes, like, there was a period where we didn't have any dry beans in house, mm-hmm. you know, that, I mean, and when you look at sort of the juxtaposition of everything closing, everyone buying everything and freaking out, yeah. there's like a lot of like stutter steps of situations. Um, we weren't able to get like tinned vegetables or fruit sometimes like, like in just a pallet, like it was a little harder to get, but right now, we're in a good rhythm. Like the things that we're giving, you know, we have a a can of beans, a can of fruit, a can of vegetables, and like a tomato, like, you know, for sauce or however you want to use it. Like, like it's just, there's a template for the bag and we haven't really had to deviate from it. Um, it's really about space and moving pallets around like we we just bought an elect an electric pallet jack last week where mm. we just had a manual one before mm. and that's a lifesaver yeah. um and refrigeration because neither of our walk-ins you can't just push a pallet in them you have to break the pallet down and put them in so we're going to get a refrigerated shipping container because that's sometimes when you we don't always have control over what we get. Right. So last week from food bank, we received eight pallets of food in one day that needed to be refrigerated. That takes so much manpower yeah. that it's and space, but like also just manpower when you're also trying to keep up with all of the pantry bags, all of the other food. We're also distributing breakfast and lunch. And I mean, just, cardboard recycling is insane yeah right so. um, is is this you know so i guess i'm sure that people who are listening are wondering if there are are there ways to help for people who are not food insecure um you know is is it a you know it, what is most valuable is time is volunteering an option is money important like where, where should people be putting their focus if they do want to help with this kind of thing and not just in new york but in their own communities what do you think having worked in this i mean i don't like we're not taking volunteers right now because it's not safe right um i think it's like i used to listen giving money to any organization is great and actually i think like the smaller the organization the more impactful it is because because they're smaller, it goes further, you know, like um, we sub-distribute a lot of food to different pantries and there's this really cool thing that's happening called community fridges. I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Like if you're richer, it's like 
give a chunk of change somewhere that's going to be meaningful. And like we deal in pallets of food, right? Like if you're going to donate food, don't just clean out your cupboard and get rid of like the black olives and the artichokes that you no longer want or everything that's expired because don't do that. But also think about, is there a smaller pantry where this can go like a local church or community refrigerator? But ultimately I think it's really about if someone's hungry, we've already failed, you know, like we're a band aid. Um, Like what people need is housing. They need support. They need support. They need the same support that everyone tries to give to their family and friends. But our our society is really sick. And the fact that people don't have homes and to stabilize them and medical services to stabilize them is a big part of the problem. And after this, after this pandemic or during this pandemic, when all of the... Um, eviction moratorium is gone everywhere there's going to be a lot more people in shelters yeah so i think it's like politics like vote like defunding the police is so important because they're eating all the money and they're doing it and they suck at their jobs or actually they're really good at their jobs like people say that the system's broken the system's working exactly how it should be working right right it's just the system is the wrong system it's the wrong system. Like someone at work today was like, there just needs to be better people becoming to change the system. I'm like, people don't change systems. You have to switch out, get rid of the system. Right. This system's working great. Uh, the people who are in charge with all the political power have made money. Okay. They're fine. So it's working well. Um, so that's what we need to change. We need to create more supportive communities, defund the police because they're taking all the money from every city across this country and and talk to people about defunding the police so they don't say things like, what if you get raped? And you're like, oh, shut the fuck up. It's yeah. not like, <laughs> it's not about that. It's <laughs> like no, no person with, uh, like gun should go to like uh, someone who's having a mental crisis, right. you know, right. um, because I think that that is, that's really it. You know, how can anyone be stable if they don't have a home? How can anyone be stable if they don't have medical care? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up in your job at St. John's. Um, because you cooked in a lot of restaurants. I mean, you grew up in a restaurant. Yeah. And then cooked in a lot of restaurants and some, you know, some, some, you know, that people who are followers of the restaurant scene, uh, certainly would have heard of and know about. And for you, what was it, you know, what, what was your path and what led you to be doing the work you're doing now instead of working in a restaurant? Um, I started to think about teaching people um, how to cook so they could get jobs. And, you know, when the old kind of idea of, of cooking was that it was like, like anyone can do it. It doesn't matter if you have a record. It doesn't matter, you know, if you have, you know, like a drug and alcohol problem as long as you can keep it together. 
like cooks weren't these rich boys that they are now. Um, and, and so I started thinking about that because I was really tired of being surrounded by this bro culture and like these guys who thought that they were really tough and they're all like so many of them have like trust funds and they're just really privileged. And I think that we're kind of starting to see that bro culture really be revealed with all of this Bon Appetit stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so I was trying to figure out how to get into Rikers to teach and like different avenues, but I didn't want to have a job with the DOE. And but, so I ended up answering an ad and making a syllabus and teaching in a basement in Harlem. And, and then you actually connected me with Tony Butler, the former director at St. John's Bread and Life. And I went in there to talk to him like two days after the 2016 presidential election. So I was very hungover and, um, and hopeless. And I signed on to be a consultant to make a syllabus for them and to write something so they could pitch it to the board um, and, and, you know, like do a budget and everything. And so that worked and they got funding for it and I did the pilot year, but it didn't get more funding. Um, and ostensibly, like, I learned so much because what I learned was like, I was like, no, listen, you're such a dumbass. Like, you're like, a job fixes everything. And minimum wage is going to be $15 an hour. So everything's going to be cool. And, like, that's how we approach poverty. Right. And it's messed up because it's so backwards. Like, we're not – I I was raised to have a job from when I was born, okay? Like, I was working when I was 10 years old. Like, I was cleaning glasses in the bar when I was 6 years old. Like, that was has always been a part of my life. And, like, we have to give people things at the beginning to support them so that they can flourish. We can't, like, give them something at the end and be like, fix it. You made $15 an hour. Like, if you make $15 an hour in New York, you work 40 hours a week, that's $600 before taxes are taken out. So you're making what? You're bringing home 400 bucks? Right. And then your rent, you do that times four, you're bringing home, what, $1,600 a month? Yeah. That's not even rent. That's yeah. not, rooms are $1,000 now. Yep. So, so it was, that program, I just learned how much I didn't know. I was just, I, if you don't know, and I think a lot of people are having this reckoning and reading material and stuff like this, and like if you don't know how difficult it is to live in a shelter and that like it's so hard to have a job and live in a shelter at the same time and that if you're late because you stayed late at work, they'll give your bed up. Right. I remember talking with you, you know, as that program was was operational um, and in the middle of it. And I remember having a conversation about exactly that, that what became so clear was that while the training that was being offered was valuable and could lead to a minimum wage job for the people going through the program, that there was so much support that they didn't have before even getting to that point. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's what we're missing. And so yeah. there are some, there's like, like drive change is a really great program and they provide a lot of support. And I think that they, 
were able to realize how much support people really need. Um, and but, but I was there for over a year. And, you know, I'm not one of those people to, like, enter a kitchen and be like, let me show you how to do everything. Or I like to think I'm not that person. But after a year, I was like, there's some blind spots here. And people who work at St. John's haven't... Um, I don't think anyone's worked in a restaurant. Maybe one person, Argo, I think, has worked in a restaurant before. He worked in a barbecue place in South Carolina. Um, he's like a guy who can, like, skin a ham with, like, a butter knife, essentially, you know? <laughs> but I just saw, you know, when you work in a restaurant, you have eyes for things. And so I was like, I can, I can help you guys, and I can help you guys organize food and create systems because we also needed to start tracking how much produce and bread we were giving away because it wasn't digitized. Um, and that's also creating systems that anyone can use and any volunteer and any um, staff member. So I started working on that and, and also thinking about creating this thing called resource sharing because I've never worked at a nonprofit. And sometimes I think that nonprofits can, I don't know, this is a, Old, like it, sometimes it feels like there's tunnel vision. I think a lot of people have tunnel vision with their jobs. And for nonprofits, because they are competitive with each other because it's just funding, it's probably proprietary. I don't even know if that's a word. Um, but I saw like resource sharing is important, you know, like especially in if you have limited storage and you have a lot of produce, you got to figure out where who to give it to. Yeah. So I came up with the name resource sharing. Um, and so that, that's what I was focusing on kind of before this, to sub-distribute to other pantries because also we're in bed And as bed becomes more and more gentrified and people get pushed more and more out, you know, people can only go so far to go get food. Yeah. Um, so if we can find other places to give it, we're helping to feed more people. Right. And you guys have the logistics to say, receive pallets, which we do other we places. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like Greenpoint reform church, like we give food to them. Um, there's just, there's a lot of different programs and, you know, and we, we do have like city harvest and food bank accounts. So it's, it's a different game than, you know, smaller places. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com.
So I have to say that I, I've been, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed um, talking with you over the years that we've been friends because you always tell it straight. And uh, you've started something <laughs> new on your Instagram called Palette Talk. Palette Talk. Which, you know, I, I don't know what other people think of it, but I really like it because I think that, you know, we've, we've talked over the years in many different contexts about people being disconnected from the way things, for lack of a better way to describe it, from the way things really work. Um, yes. Whether that is people not understanding that bacon comes from the belly of a pig and how that relates to the rest of the animal and that when you buy it in the supermarket, you're very disconnected from that or just disconnected from the way logistics and the way things move around that people, you know, especially now more than ever, oh, you get on your phone and you say, oh, I need this thing. And you click a couple of, you know, things. And then tomorrow this guy shows up and knocks on your door and there's a box with the thing in it without a lot yeah. of thought about what that had to go through in order to get to you. And so you've started kind of highlighting the way that St. John's gets produce and gets things on pallets. Tell me a little bit about what, what was the inspiration for that? Oh, it's rage. Um, it was a day that we received two pallets of milk and two pallets of the like quarts of eggs, you know, like the pre-cracked eggs and pallets. And, um, and we were just moving them and it was just, I had a lot of rage and I have a lot of rage for food media and and people who chose food as like a the thing that they're gonna do and that they have never done physical labor because you can't talk about food and not talk about physical labor. And so I have a big problem with that and um because I think it helps with the appreciation, but also it's like a total class thing yeah. and it's a race thing. And um, Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I would encourage people to think about it is that if anyone is listening and you don't have a sense, you know, a pallet is uh, approximately 40 by 45 inches. Um, so 40, here, are you trying to, are you trying to steal a pallet? <laughs> Not at a all. Pallet is, it's 40 by 48, okay? So it's 40 inches by 48 inches. Um, and it ranges depending on what's on it from like 1,000 pounds to, I don't think they get bigger than 2,500 pounds. Gen and it's generally about, if it's like boxes of produce that are like bushels, it's like 50 boxes. Um, a pallet of potatoes weighs a ton. A pallet of onions weighs a ton. Those are the guys in bags. So that's a pallet. And and listen, I know that there's plenty of people who buy things directly from farmers and things are not done in pallet form. And, like, that's, yeah, that's great. Like, we need small food ways and systems. But there's still a lot of work involved because I – grew up in a restaurant and I also grew up on a farm and there's I think that as people are like food is culture food is culture like the consumption of it you have to also know that you're consuming someone's work someone's work and have some appreciation for that it can't just be like like we're kind of dilettantes 
you know, mm -hmm. like it can't just be like the most beautiful plate of food. And, and I feel like the people who write about food are scared of work and they think it's ugly and everything. And so like people have to pretend like it's really that they're just graceful human beings. Although I will say that I find that a lot of white people talk about how much work they do much more than other people. <laughs> They're like, oh, I work so hard. I'm like, everyone works hard. Yeah. So this is how hard it was going to be. So palette talks inspired by rage, but also information and like, you know, people, most people aren't going to deal with industrial, with palettes. Yeah. Um, but so, it's Im but it's important to recognize that that's what goes into it. I mean, I you know, I was what I w where I was headed when when uh, I, I appreciate that you corrected me uh, on the sizing <laughs> of the palette. Where I was headed was trying to break it down even further and say to most people, like, you know, if you live in New York, imagine carrying your normal bag of groceries up your stairs to your apartment and then do that like two hundred more times. Oh my god! Yeah, and that's a pallet. It's yeah. It's. Well, I was obsessed with them before because I had an epiphany that well, last summer that what the soup kitchen needed was a walk-in that we could just push pallets into, right? Because yeah. no one there is getting any younger. Right. And we also have a lot of volunteers and our garage is not climatized because that would cost like 200 grand. So, so I, you know, we found the money for it. Uh, we could support more. We could do more with produce. We could sub-distribute more. So, so I'm obsessed with pallets, right? And I got like bids from refrigerator guys and stuff like that. And then that got, you know, that got axed because of um, COVID. So then, and then I'm like, why didn't this happen earlier? One month earlier. <laughs> so that's also part of my rage. But you know, I, whatever. I'm strong. Uh, But that's, I mean, that's palette talk. And palette talk's like, listen, I don't want people to, I think that people feel like they uh, like to be like, I appreciate this. Like, remember, remember when your parents would give you food and then there was always like a, like, there's starving children somewhere. Like, that's not what I'm thinking of right. when I'm thinking of palette talk. I'm just thinking of, like, there's a whole world of people that are involved with the food on your plate. And you're never going to meet them, but you should appreciate them. And you should know how hard the work is. Like, our food media is so messed up. Like, most farmers are not really pretty, okay? Um, right. And the, and the food media, folks. yeah, the food media is celebrating, you know, in large part the finished product. Um, and, and as evidenced, I mean, you brought up the thing at Bon Appetit. I mean, it's celebrating a specific worldview and a specific you know, a specific it's aesthetic. people from fashion yep. who came there, so they value fashion and how things look first. Yep. That's what they value. And if you come from work, even if something isn't doesn't blow your mind, you can appreciate the work involved in it, you know? And that's, I mean, that's the difference. It's like the va the value system is fucked up. Yeah, I mean it, that. That I think is a. I think it raises a really interesting point that even goes into the grocery 
thing, right? I mean, why do people think that apples are red? When you think of an apple in every drawing and every thing, it's because someone decided that that was the apple that was going to get highlighted. And so when people see apples that aren't red or green or have blemishes, there's something wrong with that. When, you know, 98% of an apple could be just as, could be edible and, you know, but people won't buy it because it has one little brown spot on it. Yeah, people have a lot of weird feelings about (laughs) fruit. But also, you know, like, who are the farmers that we value the most right now? Natural wine farmers. (laughs) You know, listen, I love crazy Frenchmen, okay? And I love natural wine, but there's like a whole thing that skipped over, which is like farmers here. Yep. Farmers in general. It's so... um, Specified. Yeah, I don't, you know, and like that, that Andrew Knowlton guy would like go to Waffle House for 24 hours and work. And it's like, it's not about doing it once. It's about waking up every day and going back and doing it yeah. every day and not, and not getting rich from it. Right, and 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 just having you know having an existence. I mean, I think that I think that you're right. There's a real disconnect between um, work and what gets shown, and it's not specific to food. Although, because we both sort of are in food, it's very clear. Um, I think to us in that, but I think it it is you know it goes back to the the system you know the system wide problems that we're talking about that you know work is hard and people should get paid for their work and they should be able to have the support systems of home and food and community and society to help with those things and what we have is a broken system where people end up falling through the cracks and those things are not there to help them and so then you know and and what that does is it, it it yields what we have now right where you have people at the top who are accumulating all the wealth and that's just continuing um, and then you have people at the bottom and the people at the top say, oh, well, look at me. I'm giving money to that. Well, it, uh, yeah. And they're like, oh, did you read about that in this magazine? Isn't it great? Yeah. And you're like, it's, you're like, the problem is, is that we don't have the people who, who there's nobody in the policy room who is experiencing the problems that they're discussing you know to be like that doesn't work that's not what the problem is that doesn't work you know like there's a thing in a woman at a a caseworker at a woman's shelter told me because I was like why why is no one interested in this training we're right down the street from you and she was like you know abused women get a voucher for housing if they leave their abuser and then they lose that voucher uh, when their youngest child turns 18 or if they get a job. Hmm. How fucked up is that? Wow. Because then you're taking a woman away from work during her prime and also making her do some insane arithmetic with her uterus right. if she is so inclined to keep housing, which is, I mean, once you lose housing, it's right. really hard to get back. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, so many farmers have second jobs so that they can have health insurance and benefits. Yep. 
my uncle worked for Baltimore Gas and Electric, and he had a dairy farm. Yeah. No, I mean, I a couple of weeks ago on this program, uh, I interviewed a woman named Kim Coulter, and she and her husband run a farm called Stony Hill Cattle in Rhode Island. And, you know, they work. I mean, you know, and then they also have the farm. They have jobs, yeah. and then they do the farm. Yeah. And that should be things that we all know. You know, we should know that. And we should know that, like, I don't know, was it, is it Reagan? I kind of feel like Reagan really encouraged rampant greed to the point where who are the people who decide how many hundreds of thousands of dollars they're going to make and have a company or a business? Sure. And that then there's also the people who work there who make $15 an hour. How well, can, who, yeah. That disparity is insane to me. It was the myth. I mean, it's the myth of trickle-down, which is, I think, still being, you know, touted out everywhere. That, you know, if you give people lots of money, well, what are they going to do? They're going to spend it. And it'll just, you know, it'll just trickle down. <laughs> they're going to, no, they're. <laughs> I mean, it, does, it makes no sense. It really doesn't make yeah. sense. I mean, maybe they'll spend it and then maybe you'll work at an Amazon warehouse and pack their order and die because somebody got, someone you work with has COVID. Right. Also, my sister just got a job in an Amazon warehouse, so I have a lot of feelings. Mm. And the post office. Um. So, I mean, at, you know, I, I think we, we could go we could go on forever, and hopefully we could totally go on. I mean, it's taking a depressive. Yeah. Turn. Well, so I want to I wanted to ask, <laughs> what are what are some things that make you smile in the midst of right in now? the midst of all of this? I mean. Things that make me smile right now are uh, there's so many really inspiring people who are leading protests and marches and then and like they're just killing it and yeah. you know like I went to a rally at the Barclays Center that was um New York black, black women, you know, and that, that was really, um, important and inspiring and like, like people, I don't know, like we were talking about how overwhelming Instagram is right now, um, and I, you know, I've discussed how much I do not care for the food media, but also like all these basic ass people in the food media investigating their own white supremacy mm -hmm. and is important because, because we have to sacrifice. We have to give something up. It's not sacrifice, but we have to like, like this is a messed up system that has given us too much Yep. so that other people don't have it um yeah i think then, one of the things that's made me smile is definitely the uh the way in which the current sort of series of protests at least the, you know the ones that i've been attending and people i've been talking to they all seem to be better organized by younger people 
Yeah. Than any, I mean, my brother and I were talking about this. I mean, we've been going to protests our whole lives. I mean, since we were teenagers, since the 90s, we've gone to climate protests and anti-war protests and women's march and all of these things. Yeah. And not to take anything away from all of those, but there is something about this movement where, to me, I see the real, the leaders in this are teenagers. And that's exciting. Yeah. And it's and really amazing. Like, there's a lot of, like, radicalized young people in terms of food you know, like these community fridges make me really happy. They're called the Friendly Fridge and they're online. And it's, there's one like in Crown Heights and, and Bushwick and Bed-Stuy and Harlem in the Bronx. And it's going to move around, you know, like I think DC and different cities and like, like letting go and everyone's starting to give money in such a like financially fraught time. And for people to know that it won't ruin them like to that mutual aid is where it's at and that like like scarcity is capitalism capitalism wants you to believe in scarcity because it wants you to believe that you have to buy it now and hold on to it and never give it to anyone and that's not it there's abundance out there um and you just have to believe that you are a part of a community. Like if we all only stick with capitalism, then it's a, that's a frigid fucking financial system. You know, it won't give you anything. Yep. You have to take it. Yeah. So that's like, like younger people who are radicalized are making me super happy. And, you know, in New York, we repealed 50A, which. Yeah. Like. Like, that's major, like, these things, but we still need to push. I mean, I never thought this moment in my life would come. You know? So, that makes me smile. Um, you know. Yeah, I think that the, I think that we, I think a lot has happened. I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks. And I think that a lot has happened, and I hope that the change can stick. Um, yeah. You know, at the I hope that it doesn't continue into the cycles that I feel like we've seen our whole lives, where you know, one side gets a little, then the other side gets in, you know, then somebody else gets in power and takes it away, um, you know, which we've been seeing for the past number of years since 2016. Um, but at this. You know, people keep saying this feels different, and I don't want to be a you know I don't I don't want to be the naysayer because I think it does feel different, but I hope that it stays different. Yeah, I think it feels different, but it also is like I still feel like I have. I mean, I know I have to push and I have to keep pushing. Yeah. Um. And and the other thing that makes me happy is like there's some fucking smart people out there. Like this breakdown of Bon Appetit and the people who work there talking about the environment there and also like looking at like there's a lot of really smart critical like like some of it's very blatant and then some of it is like there's a lot of really smart critical uh, analysis going on of that culture and that culture is just corporate culture too yeah. you know um and that it's, you know, like upholding bros. And hopefully we're, hopefully they will get rid of that. I hope so. 
<laughs> the sooner the better. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Millicent is on Instagram at Malicent, M-A-L-L-I-C-E-N-T, and you can follow her there and learn about palette talk. She also writes on Medium and other platforms, and you should check out her writing, too. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.